When we think about what it means to follow Jesus daily and all the good activities that are involved in being a Christian, it's easy to lapse into thinking that doing good works is what makes us Christian. Sharing our financial resources with others, for example, those who are under-resourced, making a meal perhaps for someone who's ill, unable to care for themselves, listening to someone who's struggling, right? These are good works, praying for those that we know in our sphere of influence that need prayer, interceding for them. These are good works. It's easy to think that doing these types of things is what makes us Christian. In fact, it's easy to lapse into thinking that good works are what makes the church uniquely the church. That's not the case. What Jesus says is certainly true. Do you remember his words from John chapter 13? They will know your Christians by your love. Certainly true what Jesus said, but it's not showing love that makes us Christian. They'll know we're Christians by our love, but what actually makes us Christians? Don't get me wrong, doing good is a good thing to do. It's good to love our neighbors as ourselves. It's certainly what God longs for us to do. He longs for us to do good works. It brings us joy, it brings him glory as we do them in his name. But doing good works is not what makes us Christian. One pastor put it this way. He said, the world can do almost anything as well as or better than the church. You need not be a Christian to build houses or feed the hungry or heal the sick even. There's only one thing the world cannot do. It cannot offer God's grace. So what makes a Christian Christian? What makes the church the church? Grace. God's grace. The primary thing the church uniquely does, the primary thing that Christians uniquely experience is the grace of God. It's true. They'll know we're Christians by our love, but we're only Christians because of God's grace. Now, if experiencing God's grace is the seminal element of what it means to be a Christian, how do we experience it? How can we enjoy more of it? Turn with me to Luke, Luke chapter 18. Follow along in your copy of God's word. As I read, Jesus is teaching on this important topic. Last week, we considered his teaching on the importance of persisting in prayer. Prayer this week is the setting again of Jesus' teaching. But he has a, a different focus as we compare the postures of two men in prayer. Luke chapter 18, I'm going to begin in verse 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness, Luke gives us a head up about the point of Jesus' parable here. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. So this is a broad audience he's speaking to, not particularly his disciples. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. 
The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector here. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Thanks be to God for his word. You can go home justified this morning before God. The tax collector prayed, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And the result of his prayer was justification before God. If you're familiar with the first century um, social ladder, the Jewish social ladder, you know that the, the tax collector couldn't even reach the bottom rung. He didn't rate. He didn't rank. He had uh, betrayed his nation in order to collect taxes for the Romans. So this teaching that the tax collector went home justified while the Pharisee didn't, a Jewish religious leader didn't, this is a, it's an astounding teaching for the broader public to hear. To be justified means to have right standing before God, to stand before God without guilt, to stand before God without shame. Think of the things that plagued you this week, the sin that chased you. To be justified is to stand before God despite those sins without guilt and without shame. And make no mistake, Jesus tells this story because he wants, he wants me, he wants us to be justified. He wants us to have the tax collector's experience. He doesn't want us to have the Pharisee's experience. That is being really moral, and missing out. Jesus longs for us to live free of shame, free of guilt because of our sinfulness, and free of the burden. This is, I think, pivotal for the Western verbs. Free of the burden of self-righteousness. Free of the burden of self-justification free of the burden of meriting or trying to merit his favor. Jesus wants us to experience and to enjoy God's grace. In fact, the Greek verb here, bear with me, right, which is translated have mercy, have mercy, God, do this, have mercy. It's unique. It has a special meaning. It means to, you ready? propitiate or expiate someone's sin, which I know are odd words, usually used only by theologians. They're odd theological words, though, worth knowing. Because they communicate concept, concepts that help us understand exactly what transpires when God forgives us. It, it helps us understand exactly what's happening with this table that we celebrate, we remember monthly together. Words have meaning. 
How is it exactly that the tax collector went home justified and the Pharisee, the moral guy, did not? It has something to do with the plea, have mercy. Words have meaning. These two words communicate the nature of God's care for us. You ready? Expiation refers to the covering of our sin, the covering of it, so that one's guilt is no longer seen by God. King David saying, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered over, Psalm 32. It's a beautiful psalm, perhaps my favorite, if not one of my favorites, for sure. Psalm 32, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Imagine in your mind's eye, Hopefully we've all done this. This is fairly commonplace in my household, right? There's a stain on the coffee table. So you buy a decorative book and you cover the stain. (laughs) The book's cheaper than a new coffee table. I'll take the chuckles as you can identify. We used to have a dog that loved magic markers. The dog would grab a magic marker and then go to town on it, leaving a huge ink spot on our carpet. We, came, we became fairly adept at covering the stains, rugs, furniture, that type of thing. Picture that in your mind's eye, the sin that you wrestled with this week. Happy. Happy is the one whose transgressions are covered over by God and no longer seen as a consequence. The tax collector's praying that God's mercy would be shown toward him and that his sins would not be seen by God, by God the Father, by his creator. All right, propitiation. Propitiation is the act of turning away God's wrath toward our sin. So have you ever had anybody look at your ugliness full face? You're, you're exposed before them. Your moral deficits are seen clearly. They see them, and then they turn away, and you're so relieved that that this person or the general public's no longer looking at your moral deficits. He's saying, have mercy on me. Propitiate. Turn your wrath away from my sin. Wrath is God's righteous anger toward our sin. You don't hear much about that in popular culture. Our creator, to whom we're accountable, does not like our sinfulness because it's outside of his character and his intent for us. It's not who he is, and it's not who he's created us to be. Wrath is God's righteous anger, his holy opposition toward our sinfulness. So the plea for the mercy by the tax collector is twofold. He's wanting his sin to be covered so that it's no longer seen by God, but he's also wanting the wrath of God towards his sin, Don't look upon my sin anymore and turn your wrath away from my sinfulness. He doesn't want, the tax collector doesn't want any longer to bear God's justified anger towards his sinfulness. And the truth is, none of us can bear God's wrath. None of us. It's one thing to cover the stain in your carpet with a a rug, right? It's a whole nother matter to turn your wrath away from the dog who caused the stain. 
It's one thing to have your sin covered by God. It's a whole other thing to escape his justified anger towards your sin. Have mercy on us, right? That should be, at this point, we should all be thinking, me too, Lord. <laughs> I need some of that. Uh, my prayer, I want to be identified with the tax collector in his cry for expiation and propitiation. How might this actually work when it comes to human sin? How might God's, how might he cover someone's sin? Why would he turn his wrath away from us? Remember the context of the parable. They're both in the temple. Do you remember what went on in the temple? Do you remember why these two would have been at the temple? Both highly moral and highly immoral. Why are they at the temple in the first place? Blood sacrifices. Blood sacrifices were offered daily in the temple for sin. The blood of bulls and goats and doves, birds, slaughtered, then burned in offerings. Oftentimes, or ordinarily, the sinner would place his hands on the sin offering and thus uh, symbolically charging or imputing, another theological word, charging the animal to bear the burden of his sin, the person's sin, the one doing the offering. And then the animal would lose his life, shed his blood, and be offered up, consumed by fire in many cases. Most simply put, the animal paid the price for the sin committed, or sins rather, by, committed by the humans. The animals took the place, substitutionary sacrifice, suffering for the wrongdoings committed by the humans. Through this sacrificial system, God made a way for his ancient people to be in relationship with him. God made a way for us to come into his presence through sacrifice. Without the shedding of blood, the Old Testament tells us, there's no forgiveness for sin. While sin separated God's people from him, God provides a means of expiation. God provides a means of propitiation. And so the Pharisee and the tax collector, they're at the temple offering prayers. But the temple is the place for expiation, propitiation, so that God's people could come into his presence. Of course, the Pharisee in the story it was not justified. Rather than depending upon the mercy of God, crying out for it, he depended upon his own self-righteousness, his own works of righteousness. And this is why I start by pointing out what makes Christians Christians? What makes the church the church? Folks, it can't be our morality. God would certainly rather we be moral than immoral. But he doesn't want us depending upon our morality, however impressive it may be for justification before him. The Pharisee depended upon his good activities, his good works. But sinners cannot be saved by what sinners do. Sinners can only be saved by what God does for them. Sinners cannot be saved by what sinners do. Sinners can only be saved by what God does for them. That's why Christ was sinless. 
He did for us what we cannot do for ourselves. The Pharisee's prayer was all about what he had done to demonstrate his righteousness. I thank you that I'm not like these others. I've not stolen, committed adultery, right? He gives a short list of what he's abstained from doing. I've, I've not been dragged, tempted into these sins. Then he gives a short list of what he has done. Fasted twice a week. Give a tenth of all that I have. And let's remember that the Pharisee was in the temple to make sacrifices. He's there offering prayer, but the temple's the place of sacrifice. He's at the temple just like the tax collector, both of them perceivably participating in the sacrificial system. But they had very different postures toward God while doing so. The Pharisee was presenting his sacrifices for sin, without a doubt. But he wasn't actually depending on those sacrifices to cover over his sin or to turn the wrath of God away from his sin. He's instead depending upon his own good works to justify himself before God, which meant he was going through the motions. Ever go through the motions with God? He was going through the motions without experiencing God's mercy. He had a form of godliness, didn't experience its power. Why not? Well, because of his pride. Because of his desire to be justified not by God's ordained sacrificial system, but rather by his own demonstration of righteousness. And we must admit, we shouldn't miss this, the Pharisee was actually impressive morally. He was impressive morally. He was, in fact, just as he said, not like all these other people standing in the room. He was, in fact, not at all like the tax collector. Considering the uh, first century social ladder of the Jewish community, he was at the top rung, not the bottom, not the middle. He was at the very top. The problem was that that doesn't mean he was without sin. Follow me here. This is part of what throws folks when it comes to salvation. While someone might be highly moral, that doesn't mean they're without sin. And we quickly forget that. And unless we're without sin, we need to have the verbiage and the posture of the tax collector. Have mercy on us. Let's be honest, the morality of many Hindus, Buddhists, Muslims, is very impressive. And in many cases, much more impressive than the morality of Christians. You know, we're in the month of Ramadan. If you're familiar with the, the Islamic holy calendar, right? It's the month of fasting. Muslims are spending the month fasting from sunup to sundown, eating only when the sun is set. That's a lot of devotion. That's a disciplined, self-disciplined lifestyle. Full of sincerity. 
So we need to, we need to understand the place of morality in following after Jesus. I think of uh, where I received my COVID shots. I got both my uh, Moderna vaccines and um, I got them at the BAPS Hindu temple out on Route 59. Largest Hindu temple in North America. They give tours if you're interested. And it's a fascinating tour. The BAPS charity sponsored the entire um, process where they welcomed the community into the Hindu temple and volunteers staffed it. And, it, and they had paid professionals to administer the shots. It's pretty impressive community service element. I think they inoculated some 3,000 folks over the course of a month. What makes Christians Christian? Why do we gather this morning? It cannot be to celebrate our morality. It can't even primarily be to train our children to be moral. Unfortunately, many would rather recite their moral accomplishments, much like the Pharisee did, than to admit their need for God's mercy. I would even imagine that the Pharisee understood his sinfulness, but that he was trying to manage his sin rather than pleading for God's care. Ever try to manage sin? It's unmanageable. That's why Christ came. Which isn't to say we shouldn't try to discipline ourselves and, and overcome sin by the power of the Spirit. Some sins are more manageable than others, of course. When the Pharisee prayed, I thank you, I'm not like all the other sinners, he was missing the point. Other sinners are not our standard of righteousness. righteousness. So when we try to manage sin, it's often because we have one eye on our own behavior and another eye on somebody else's behavior, and, and we're looking to see how do we match up on the morality ladder. The problem is when we compare ourselves to other people, the people with whom we're comparing ourselves, they're not the standard of righteousness. I, this, my deep uh, um, conviction is this is why people watch the Jerry Springer show because you look at the chaos on the Jerry Springer show and you think well it could be worse at least I'm not but the folks on the Jerry Springer show they're not the standard of righteousness either it's natural to compare our sin with the sin of others but comparing our sin with the sin of others is like comparing who can jump closer to the moon. Do you know that every NBA player, I would say probably past and present, can jump higher than I can? But neither of us will ever jump to the moon, which is the distance required to merit God's favor. It is to say that Distance, metaphorically speaking, needed to be holy, as God is holy. Even if whomever, right, Michael Jordan or somebody, can jump three feet higher than I can, 
And if he were to look down his nose at me, there's no hope. Even though he can jump higher than me, there's no way he's going to jump from here to the moon. The comparison in our jumping ability with, with one another would not actually accurately portray how far we fall short of the distance needed to travel morally. You might be more righteous than I am. In fact, I hope you are. I hope you are. That's not an accurate reflection of how far we both fall short of the glory of God in the dire need we have for his forgiveness. You may be a pretty good husband, a pretty good father, mother, neighbor, co-worker, but we are not the standard of perfection. For this reason, comparing our, our morality, our spiritual health to that of others is terribly dangerous. because we either feel good about ourselves or, or feel horrible about ourselves, right? Both is a possibility. We ever, either have a false sense of pride. Wow, I'm glad I'm not like them. Or we, we adopt a posture of self-loathing and move, miss out altogether on the love of, that God has for us, that he's shown for us in Christ. The good news is that sacrifices of, of the animals day in and day out, they're no longer required. God has offered a final and perfect sacrifice on our behalf in Christ Jesus. And, and Christ is available to anyone who would call out, have mercy on me. In fact, if you've never done that this morning, just as Sarah said, we'd urge you, let this be the morning when you begin to depend upon Christ. When you cut the ties to a reliance upon yourself and a comparison one to another, and you say, Father, forgive me. Have mercy upon me. Cover over my sin. Turn your anger away from my sinfulness. The scripture says that if we confess our sin, that he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Not only forgive us, not only cover it, not only turn his wrath away, but to cleanse us or restore us is another word. To redeem all that sin has destroyed. That's the mission God is on. Would you pray with me? Father, we're so thankful for your goodness to us as a community. We thank you for the, the beauty of the gospel. That while you long for us to be highly moral and that your spirit is at work in us, it's not our morality upon which we are to depend, but upon actually the morality of Jesus. His sinless life, sacrificial death, and victorious resurrection. Drive the message of your grace deeper into our hearts and minds. It's truly good news. It's truly good news that while we were still sinners, you sent your son to die for us. We pray that in the days ahead, you would add to the number of those who are being saved. We think of our Hindu and Buddhist and Muslim neighbors. And we ask, Father, that we would we would carry to them what is truly the best news and you'd add to the number of those who are being saved in the days ahead. For the glory of Christ, we pray, amen.